Open to Luke chapter 18, and we'll start at verse 18 and go through verse 30. Please stand for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. A ruler questioned him, questioned Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, then then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So in our passage... This morning, we see a well-known, well-established, wealthy, and virtuous man, in a sense, who has an opportunity to ask Jesus Christ, his creator, a question. And that question immediately follows on the heels of Jesus having talked about babies and childlikeness and who can enter the kingdom of God and that one entering the kingdom of God must receive the kingdom like a a child with humility, with complete dependence upon God Almighty. God must come to rescue the weak, the dead, and the incapable, right? The children. And so as has been established recently by Donald Trump, wealthy men have a hard time with, with child-likeness. Right? If by child-likeness we mean the characteristics of selflessness and humility and dependence. Right? Wealthy people think what? Wealthy people think their money is their righteousness that it is indeed the answer to everything. 
So much so that they do not even see their fundamental need of forgiveness from God. They, they don't need to rely on anyone but themselves. They don't need to cry out like that, that wretched tax collector who said, God, have mercy upon me, the sinner. You know, who, they don't need to ask for God's mercy. They, they need not be humble. They need not be desperate like little babies. But the fact of the matter is, is this. Rich, rich and important people will die one day and face judgment and their investments their properties their influence right their their cachet their their worldly gravitas right will not impress almighty god all of our rich men and women know this. And you know what? They know it and it enrages them. It enrages them that their riches, which give them everything in this world, will not have any weight after they die. Do you know what most rich what most of the rich men of today are investing in? They're the biggest investors in the extent of in, in extending human life, right? I, I'm not just thinking about giving money to to uh, cures for cancer, but rather technologies that aim to make man immortal and unable to die, right? Here's one example: Mark Zuckerberg. You've heard of him, right? He's a rich man, extremely rich. He's in the top three now. Here's from an article. In a rare encounter between a social media mogul and a physicist, Stephen Hawking, Stephen Hawking asked Zuckerberg, I would like to, I would like to know a unified theory of gravi- gravity and, and the other forces. Which of the big questions in science would you like to know the answer to and why? And so, so like... Talking, singing of gravity and, and, you know, movement. Zuckerberg's response centered on his fascination with people and his hopes for medical advances that will essentially turn us all into supermen. He said, and this is a quote, I'm most interested in questions about people. He said, what will enable us to live forever? How do we cure all diseases? How does the brain work? How does learning work? And how can we empower humans to learn a million times more than they learn now? Google's working on that. There are many other rich men like this. Ray Kurzweil, Kurzweil keyboards, right? Rich man and a transhumanist, they're called. Peter Thiel, the the co-founder of PayPal. Interestingly, Bill Gates who likes to think that he can solve a lot of things, a lot of society's evils with his money. He's level-headed about this attempt to find eternal life. He said, it seems pretty egocentric while we still have malaria and TB for rich people to fund things so they can live longer. 
but think about this. The rich rulers are asking the same question today as this rich ruler did back in the presence of Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But our rich men have not been asking God for that answer. They've been asking scientists and they've been asking researchers, all of whom depend upon that man's wealth for their own research. And those scientists have said, download your brain's data into a computer. Right? Preserve your body through cryogenics. Manipulate genes to make them disease-proof, etc., 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 etc. Do all of these things. And don't forget this. All of this has not touched the one disease that matters most, which is sin. Sin, the, the corruption of man's nature through the sin of our first father, Adam. And so the anthropology of the rich man is that man is a soulless animal. He's just animated material. And, and once we can get that material working efficiently, um, we, won't, we will still know death. The anthropology of Scripture is radically different. Right? Man is a body and a soul, flesh and spirit, And those things have been corrupted, broken by sin. Right? Man is not perfectible simply by adding numbers of days to the end of his life. Right? Years to his lifespan. That will not perfect man. It is sin that is at the root of all these diseases, all these disharmonies, all these dissatisfactions that, that the rich men are throwing their money at to cure Imagine if, if Mark Zuckerberg does figure out how we can learn a million times more than we already have learned. It will simply make us a million times more sinful than we are today. It will make us a million times more rebellious. It will make us a million times more unchildlike in our approach to our Father in heaven. Scripture is categorical about this anthropology. In Adam, all die. And more poetically, this bleak and wonderful reminder from Solomon in Ecclesiastes, right? Ecclesiastes is a powerfully and beautiful and intense work. And it's meant to depress us. In a way, he says this, as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. And that's an undeniable and scientifically proven reality. All men die. And that enrages the rich. It enrages the rich. right? It enrages us, but it especially enrages the rich. They've denied they are sinful, and now they rage at God with their billions of dollars waving in their hands. They're just like those rebels 
in Babel who determined to build a tower that would reach up to heaven. And when they finished, God had to stoop to see it. It amounted to nothing. He had to squint, right? So that question, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Is being asked today just as it was in Jesus' day and just as it always will be till the end of days? If the answer to that question does not deal with the corrupt nature of man, with the reality of sin and sinfulness, it will merely condemn a man to remain eternally in his sinfulness, no matter how long he lives before he inevitably dies. So how does Jesus answer this question from the rich ruler? Well, first, Jesus corrects the rich man for calling him good teacher. And then he says something perplexing. He says, no one is good except God alone. Right? I mean, that's a perplexing statement because Jesus is God and he's good. And he knows it, and yet it seems he's both denying that he is good and that he is God, right? Well, here's what I think is going on here. that The man called Jesus teacher is no problem at all. The disciples, the apostles, many people called Jesus teacher, rabbi, right? The apostles, uh, many who loved him, called him teacher. And they received no rebuke for it. Our rich ruler is the only one who calls him good teacher. And that part of this man's address, that adjective, is the word that Jesus latches onto in his response. He says, you know, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. And so we generally read that question, why do you call me good, as not a genuine question. We read it like Jesus is saying, you shouldn't call me good. But what if the question is genuine? Right? Why do you call me good? <laughs> he addresses this young man and wants to know, the particular reason he calls Jesus good. And given what Jesus says in the next sentence, which is a statement about God being the one good, Jesus could be asking the question to coax out whether this man is being sarcastic or condescending or genuine even. Right? Does this ruler think Jesus is good because he is God, or is this ruler using good sarcastically with a smirk on his face, so to speak? Good teacher. You know, what was the tone of his voice? Good teacher. So the ruler was treating Jesus, I'd say, superficially. It appears. And so Jesus does not let him get away with it. And he asks him, why are you calling me good? I want an answer. You call, you know, you call everyone good when you want something from them, don't you, rich man? And that's what we do. When you want something from your wife, you say, good wife. <laughs> when you want something from your banker, you say, good banker. Right? When you want something from your dog, you say, good dog. And so Jesus is essentially saying, you will not do that to me. 
God alone is good. I am not your man. Now having, you know, so I think that's what Jesus is doing in addressing this question. It's not that he's denying his deity. He's not denying his goodness at all. He's examining the motives of the one who's saying the words. Now, what is Jesus' answer to the main question? He was asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? How does he answer it? He answers it this way, you know the commandments. Jesus proceeds to recite the second table of the moral law, but out of order. Commandment 7, commandment 6, commandment 8, commandment 9, and then commandment 5. Okay, and, and the ruler, like, like a boss, right? He says, all these things I've, com- I've kept from my youth. He has not committed adultery. He has not murdered. He has not stolen. He has not lied. He has not dishonored his father and his mother At least he says he has not done those things. Now, one commandment is missing, isn't it? Which one? The tenth commandment is missing. What is the tenth commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. But it's not really missing, is it? It's not really missing in the list. After the rich man speaks, Jesus, hearing his answer, said, one thing you still lack. Okay, there's another commandment here. Sell all that you possess and distribute it, the money, to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So that that command of Jesus hits him right in the covetousness, doesn't it? Calvin says that Jesus puts his finger on the sore of this man. Well, you say he's a rich man. He doesn't covet. Rich men don't covet. He he has everything he needs. That's our, our functional operating principle as Americans, right? Rich men don't covet because they can buy what they want. And so if I just have a little bit more, my coveting for what my neighbor has will cease. And that's foolishness. If we think that rich men don't covet, it's because we think we'd be content if we had more riches. We assume that the rich man gets to the point where covetous turns off. Covetousness turns off because he has everything. Mark Zuckerberg is not content with his billions. Why? How do I know that? Because he wants to buy eternal life. And he doesn't have enough money for it right now. He wants to buy eternal life through technology, and that's going to take trillions upon trillions upon trillions. In fact, it won't happen at all because the bell is tolling for Mark Zuckerberg. So, so Jesus here is singling out the raging covetousness of this man, this rich man. And Jesus tells him to do something. In fact, he tells him to do something that's not a requirement of the law anywhere. 
Nowhere in the law does it say that you have to sell everything you own and give the money to the poor. Right? But, but Jesus is applying the Tenth Commandment to an extremely covetous man. Okay? To this rich man. And it's so, thou shalt not covet means for this man, go and sell all that you possess and give the money to the poor. Part with those properties. Jesus is telling a covetous man not to covet. The law of God, the Tenth Commandment, tells every man everywhere not to covet. And when the law of God tells a man not to covet, do you know what happens? And a man where the Spirit is at work, he begins to see his covetousness everywhere. Every time he opens his up and looks at something, he realizes he's longing for it and wants it as his own. He not only wants material things, he wants, wants personality things and psychological things, and then he also wants the real thing behind all of the having of things, which is to boast in those things. A man in whom the Spirit of God is at work begins to see bondage to sin everywhere, especially when the law speaks to him. If he is not dead to the law, then he sees the law and he sees his sinfulness. The Apostle Paul had this exact experience. Romans 7. I would not have come to no sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came... Sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous, righteous and good. Therefore, Paul goes on anticipating the questions that we would have after he says something like that, right? That's what... Romans, the book of Romans does so well. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? In other words, did the law stirring up sin, the, the knowledge of sin in me? Was it, was it a terrible thing? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin. By affecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become what? Utterly sinful. Isn't that beautiful? The law was used to show him his sin so that he would see the sin and it would be utterly sinful. It would be disgusting to him. So Jesus is, is straight on preaching the law to this man. Knowing that unless this man understands his sinfulness, he will see no need for the grace of God. He will not understand it, and he will see no need for it. He does not start 
with grace. He starts with the holy law of God. And why don't we, when we witness to our drunk neighbor, to our adulterous son or daughter, why don't we start with the law? Well, because we think the laws of God is not good and that there's no lawful use of it. And our job is to protect people from a knowledge of their sinfulness because that's like a cosmic bummer, right? Jesus is good. You just, you need Jesus, right? Like Jesus is is a vitamin supplement. Jesus died. He's not a supplement. Jesus died because of sinfulness, because of our sinfulness. And so, you know, we, we, um, we, we all become Joel Osteen when we start to witness. Right? Life is better with Jesus. Come to Jesus. No freedom from your sins. Come to Jesus. We think the law of God is not good, that there is no lawful use of it. We think it is not fit for the ears of an unbeliever and that it's not appropriate for the ears of a believer. So where does it fit? We're wrong on both sides. We're wrong on both sides. Unbelievers need it to, to, to reveal sin. Believers need it to pursue righteousness. Function of the law. Here's, um, I love this quote. It came back to me this week as I was working on this. Of all people that you wouldn't think would understand this, John Steinbeck understood this. He wrote a book called Travels with Charlie. It's a it's autobiographical. He traveled around in a truck uh, called um, Roxanante little camper on the back with his dog, went around and just witnessed life and wrote about it. Okay, And he says this about a, a town he ended up in. Sunday morning in a Vermont town, my last day in New England, I shaved, dressed in a suit, polished my shoes, whited my sepulcher, and looked for a church to attend. Several I eliminated for reasons I do not now remember, but on seeing a John Knox church, And so we assume by that that it's a Presbyterian church. That's what he called it, a John Knox church. I drove into a side street and parked Ronxonate, the name of his camper, out of sight and gave Charlie his instructions about watching the truck and took my way with dignity to a church of blindingly white shiplap, white-sided New England, classic white New England church. I took my seat in the rear of the spotless, polished place of worship. The prayers were to the point, directing the attention of the Almighty to certain weaknesses and undivine tendencies I know to be mine and could only suppose were shared by others gathered there. The service did my heart and I hope my soul some good. It had been long since I had heard such an approach. It is our practice now, at least in the large cities, to find from our psychiatric priesthood that our sins aren't really sins at all, but accidents that are set in motion by forces beyond our control. There was no such nonsense in this church. The minister, a man of iron, 
with tool-steeled eyes and a delivery like a pneumatic drill, opened up with prayer and reassured us that we were a pretty sorry lot. And he was right. We didn't amount to much to start with, and due to our own tawdry efforts, we had been slipping ever since. Then, having softened us up, he went into a glorious sermon, a fire and brimstone sermon, having proved that we, or perhaps only I, were no damn good. He painted with cool certainty what was likely to happen to us if we didn't make some basic reorganizations for which he didn't hold out much hope. (laughs) He spoke of hell as an expert. Not the mush-mush hell of these soft days, but a well-stoked, white-hot hell served by technicians of the first order. This reverend brought it to the point where we could understand it. A good, hard coal fire, plenty of draft, and a squad of open-hearth devils who put their hearts into their work, and their work was me. I began to feel good all over. For some years, now listen to this. That was not a sarcastic statement, what he just said. For some years now, God has been a pal to us, practicing togetherness. And that causes the same emptiness a father does playing softball with his son. But this Vermont God cared enough about me to go to a lot of trouble kicking the hell out of me. He put my sins in a new perspective. Whereas they had been small and mean and nasty and best forgotten, this minister gave me some size and bloom, and dignity to my sins. I hadn't been thinking very well of myself for some years. But if my sins had this dimension, there was some pride left. I wasn't a naughty child, but a first-rate sinner. And I was going to catch it. I felt so revived in spirit that I put $5 in the plate. And afterward, in front of the church, shook hands warmly with the minister and as many of the congregation as I could. It gave me a lovely sense of evil doing that lasted clear until Tuesday. I even considered beating Charlie to give him some satisfaction too. Because Charlie is only a little less sinful than I am. All across the country, I went to church on Sundays, a different denomination every week, but nowhere did I find the quality of that Vermont preacher. He forged a religion designed to last, not pre-digested obsolescence. (sighs) That makes a good point, doesn't it? We do not hear preaching on the law, preaching on sin today. We don't hear it. And so the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very means of our salvation, is is equally weak. Little sins require little work. Little laws mean little redemptions. Little sins, little Jesus. But Jesus, on this day, to that man, preached the law. 
And his response, his response, Steinbeck had a better response to the preaching of the law. At least it convicted him until Tuesday. This rich young ruler responded as a man who is dead to the law. Notice what the text says of his response. It says, but when he, when he heard these things, he became very sad. He was sad. That could have been a great response, couldn't it have been. When he heard these things, he was, he was sad. Sad because because he was a lawbreaker, right? He was sad because he he had he would stepped all over God's holy law. Sad because he hadn't in reality kept God's standard of of righteousness in the law. But that's not what the text says. The text says that he went away sad because he was extremely rich. There was no crying out for this man on that day, God be merciful to me, the sinner, but only, but I'm rich, Jesus. I think, you know, you can, you enter into the, the, the characters in scripture and, and you, can, you can imagine him saying to Jesus, You know, I don't think you understand the magnitude of what you're asking me to do, Jesus. I am extremely rich. And Jesus responding, I don't think you understand the magnitude of what I am asking. You are extremely sinful. Now remember, Jesus told him to do three things. He told him to sell all he possesses to distribute the proceeds to the poor with a promise that he would then have treasures in heaven. And then the third thing is come, follow me. Right? What is Jesus doing there? He's offering himself to this man. He's offering himself and true riches to this man. It is not sell, distribute, and live a life of of poverty. It is sell, distribute, and find true riches in Jesus Christ. Follow me. He's holding out to this man a life of discipleship, a life of the cross, a life of of hanging on the good commandments of the law and of God and of Christ, but of, of one of nearness to God Almighty and to his Son. Now, does Jesus back down at this point? Jesus doesn't back down. Jesus looked at him. I mean, imagine the gaze of God Almighty in the face of this man. Jesus looked at him and said how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's the law thundering. From Jesus' mouth. That is the law bringing all of its weight against this man. And there are those who hear this and and ask the, the appropriate next question, right? You know, 
Was the rich man one of them? Was the rich man one of those for whom it was impossible? And, and what we know from Matthew is that he, he left. He went away. He left Jesus. He did not follow. He went away. He returned to his idol. He returned to the source of his satisfaction. He returned to his prosperity. And then, and then here are the disciples looking at this, and Jesus has just gone after this man. And they're like, who, who can be saved? Who can be saved? Isn't that a wonderful response to the preaching of the law of God? Well, then who can be saved? Law thunders in the appropriate response. The necessary response is then who can be saved? I have stolen, I have coveted, I have committed adultery, I have hated my parents. Who can be saved? And then the answer comes. And, and you know, you, you wish you could be there to see these things. The, law, the, the answer comes, and, and I imagine Jesus now smiling. And, and, and filled with love, filled with great tenderness, even filled with joy. Right? The law has thundered. They've asked who can be saved. It's an appropriate response. And he smiles now and says, the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. The things that are impossible with men he means exactly that. Right? He cannot enter eternal life. It is impossible for him. This man could not be saved, could not enter the kingdom, could not inherit eternal life. All of those things which in this passage are, are synonyms by his effort. But God could do it. So did Jesus' preaching fail? Failure of his, of his preaching the law? Well, we don't know the rest of this man's life. We're given a snapshot of this moment, and that moment becomes, to us and all who read it, it should be the preaching of the law. Riches cannot lead to righteousness. Riches, wealth, can't lead to righteousness. Effort can't lead to righteousness, right? Do we believe that? Will we hear that? Will, will it convict us? And then being undone, will we, will we say to God, then who can be saved? And God smiles and says, Jesus saves. Jesus saves sinners. And we say, amen. Let's pray. We love you, Lord. We love you, Father. We love you that you have you have done the impossible. And that is to make sinners righteous without forfeiting your holiness and your justice. 
Father, you've done it, and we are grateful. And we praise you. We are wretched, miserable, sinful men. And you dignified even our sins on the cross by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Showing us the cost of it. And we are, we are grateful to you, Father, that you have redeemed us from the curse. That you, you've made us alive when we were dead. You've done this miracle of regeneration in our hearts. And we praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.